0: Welcome back everyone, <clears throat> uh, we'll begin again with uh, about 15 minutes uh, meditation, lightly guided, now that you're all meditative pros. Uh, so take a comfortable, comfortable alert meditative posture. <laughs> and again, it's helpful just to Start with a couple of deep breaths to settle into the body, relaxing, softening the eyes and the shoulders, (laughs) the chest and the belly. Beginning again, if it's helpful with that frame, there is a body. Feeling the body sitting, sit and know you're sitting. Simply notice what's being known moment after moment. So it might be sounds. might be the sensations of the body breathing. Letting the mind be receptive, just receiving whatever appears with clarity and with precision. might become aware of other bodily sensations. Sometimes they're quite predominant and they call the attention. Other times you could settle into the awareness of the whole body and just be receptive or open to whatever subtle sensations there may be throughout the body. Perhaps there's a sense of just <clears throat> slight warmth or coolness, or softness or tightness, or maybe a subtle kind of vibration. There's no need to look for these sensations sometimes just sit in the awareness of the whole body and be receptive to whatever might show itself, whether they're very predominant or happening on a more subtle level. and stay mindful and alert for whatever thoughts or images may appear in the mind sometimes thoughts or images slide in they're not as impactful as a sensation or a sound so often we miss the arising of them Simply notice when in that process you become aware. Is it after it's over and you remember that it was there? Is it in the middle? And sometimes we do become aware of the thought or image just as it's arising. So simply to notice this. see how the thoughts or images also arise and pass away just like sounds. Notice the quality of your mind, the mind state or the mood. Are one of the hindrances present? Is there boredom? Is there interest? <clears throat> Is the mind concentrated or restless? And just to notice the basic quality of the mind, making that the object of mindfulness as well. <clears throat> These are also passing states, arising and passing just like thoughts, just like sounds. Sometimes repeating the phrase in the mind, there is a body, just as a way of reminding yourself to settle back into the awareness. The whole body posture of the body sitting When you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes and become aware of seeing. Oh, before uh, getting into the many uh, interesting questions you sent in, I want to just tell a little anecdote about the value of practicing being mindful of seeing because it's not something that's talked about a lot but it actually can have tremendous um, benefit and implications for how we're living in the world so this goes back quite a few years i was on retreat at the retreat center at ims and I began to notice whenever I would go into the dining room, you know, for one of the meals, that my mind would simply have a comment or a judgment about everyone I saw. You know, what they were wearing, how they were moving, they took too much food, they took too little food. It was ridiculous. But that's what my mind was doing. So as I saw this, you know, each time I would go into the dining room, at a certain point, I became interested in why is this... Why are these thoughts coming in the mind? They're so clearly uh, useless. Uh, And as I looked, I really learned something very important. All of those thoughts were arising because I was not being mindful of seeing. In other words, the seeing was happening. I was not noting seeing. And because of that contact with visible objects, namely all the other people in the room, that's what triggered, for whatever reason of conditioning, you know, that whole plethora of thoughts. It was amazing. as soon as I started noting, seeing, which I did then, as soon as I would go into the dining room, that's all I would note. I wouldn't note anything else, just seeing, seeing, as I went for the food, seeing, as I sat down at the table, seeing. it was amazing. It eliminated about 95 percent of all of that useless mental activity. And I realized (laughs) that, I think I mentioned it earlier, for many of us, perhaps most of us, the predominant sense experience we're having, it's like we're living in the world of what's being seen. You know, for those of us who have eyes in in working order. And yet we're not mindful of that because it it doesn't impact us in the same way as a sudden sound might or a sensation. And so we easily uh, become, are not aware, you know, are not being mindful of seeing. And so then we're living in this world of what's being seen with all the automatic reactions, you know, to what's being seen. And so we're caught up in that cycle of reactivity. And the remedy is very simple, if we can remember to do it. <laughs> and that is just to practice periodically, You know, whether in walking meditation or just in the day, in your daily activities. Periodically spend some time, even for a few minutes at a time, reinforcing this seeing, seeing, seeing. You know, so we're, we're becoming more conscious of this very predominant sense experience that mostly we are not mindful of. (laughs) I wanted to share that with you because the impact was so striking uh, and beneficial. You know, it really just eliminated a lot of uh, useless judgmental thoughts. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so now I'll get to the questions you sent in. Could you talk about how to bring together the conventions of basic communication, which includes the mind, I am and self with the deep understanding that there is no self. And then a a, a somewhat related question really had to do with the meta has to do with squaring selflessness and meta meditation. Basically, If one embraces selflessness, then to whom or what is one wishing happiness, safety, and peace? You know, may your non-self be happy. (laughs) So again, I want to emphasize that we can have, and it's a deepening part of our practice and realization, you know, to begin exploring the terrain of the experience of selflessness not mine not i not myself but at the same time being easy about using conventional language uh, and that's fine there's no problem it's really working on the different levels i talked about the other day the the relative level and the more ultimate level so for example in the meta meditation the loving kindness we are really dealing not on the ultimate level we're dealing on the relative level with the concept of beings and individual an individual, and you could say of selves, right? But this is all the relative level and that's fine. And we live a lot on this level, right? So there's no problem with engaging with it, right? especially if we understand, yes, this is, this is skillful on this level, and we also understand from our meditative experience or just our wisdom that on the more ultimate level it's really selfless but can you imagine doing the meta meditation may your five aggregates be at peace <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't ring quite <laughs> uh, Not that helpful. So no need to make this a problem. There are two different levels. Doing the metta and engaging on the relative level in a skillful, wholesome way is beneficial. You know, we're cultivating wholesome states of mind. And then in Vipassana, you know, in inside meditation, that's when we drop down to this other level and really understanding and experiencing that what we're calling self or an individual is just this flow of changing phenomena moment after moment. There's no problem, you know, engaging on both levels. And we need to engage because first we're living on both levels. And as I said, the deeper our understanding of selflessness is, the more freely and easily we can engage on the relative level, skillfully and with wholesome mind states uh, so they really work together there's there's really not a problem okay so next there were a couple of questions about right effort <laughs> um, what are the characteristics of right effort how strong is right effort how much effort is there in right effort uh, i have a pretty good idea that struggle is not helpful And one other question was, uh, what is the practical benefit of integrating right effort into my meditation practice? I had a hard time understanding specifically what that looks like in any given meditation session. So first to understand that right effort, which is one step of the Eightfold Path, and it's a crucial step, and it might also be interesting to know that when the Buddha described this one, excuse me, there's one list called the 37 factors of enlightenment. So this is an expanded list from the usual seven factors of enlightenment. So this this list of the 37 factors is comprised of many different lists, like the spiritual faculties, and the factors of enlightenment and the Eightfold Path. So these are all put together in this list of 37. In that list of 37, right effort appears more often than any other factor. (laughs) So that may give you an idea that it's really essential. And in one description of it, it says that right effort is the root or the source of all accomplishment. You know, without without right effort, we don't get anything done, whether it's in the world or in our practice. So then the challenge is what makes effort right as opposed to wrong effort? And this is a very delicate investigation, and it's a lifelong investigation. <clears throat> it's not that, you know, we play around with a little bit and then, Oh, now I have it. This is this is the perfect balance of right effort. No, it's like I've never I've never walked on a high wire. What do they call it? You know, balancing on balancing on a high wire. But it's not that that person finds the balance and then just walks across. It's a constant. As far as I can tell from watching, uh, you know, movies of it. It's a constant adjustment, a constant rebalancing on a very subtle level. Well, that's how we have to engage with right effort in our practice. Um, The Buddha gave a very uh, simple example uh, to one of the monks who was over-efforting. So he used the example of uh, tuning the strings of a lute. You know, it could be any musical instrument. And obviously, if the strings are too tight, it doesn't work. <clears throat> it doesn't produce a beautiful sound. And if the strings are too loose, it's the same situation. But the strings constantly need tuning. You know, it's a adjusting, a continual adjusting to find the balance in any particular situation. So we need to learn how to check in, you know, in our practice, with our practice, and just see, are we getting too tight? Are we efforting, right? That that over efforting is a kind of a sense of struggle. So that means we need to loosen the strings a little bit. We need to relax, settle back a bit more. On the other hand, you may be sitting or walking And you just find your mind is all over the place and not at all concentrated and kind of restless. And so then the effort may be too lax and we really have to up the effort a little bit. Pay attention, pay attention to this. So after a while, this adjustment can become very intuitive, you know, once you, once you play with it and learn about it. So I'll just give a few frameworks uh, that I have found helpful over the years for uh, managing (laughs) this question of right effort. One little phrase that I used a lot is relaxed, but not casual. Relaxed means that we're settling back. We're not leaning forward into experience. We're not... Uh, caught up in expectation you know and wanting or the three papancha we're relaxed we are settled back but not casual you know ca- by casual i mean half-hearted what what i call it's it's a meditative mind state which i call more or less mindful <laughs> you know we're kind of there but not really not fully so when you notice that that means we're too much on the casual side. You know, if you feel like you're getting tight, that means you need to relax more. So again, that could be maybe a little catchphrase you use, you know, relaxed but not casual. Another element of right effort, a kind of polarity, you know, too tight, too loose, but in a slightly different frame, has to do I call it the skillful use of yes and no. So by yes, I mean being open and receptive and accepting of what's happening. So we're not caught so much in judgment or aversion, you know, or contraction, discomfort comes. Yes, it's okay, let me feel it. Right? Or there's some difficult mind state Yes, let me feel it, let me open to it. So we're saying yes to experience. But there's also times to say no to experience, <laughs> you know, and so I'll just relate one example. <clears throat> On one retreat I was doing, and again, this goes back quite, quite a while, but it's very vivid in my mind. I was just caught up in a lot of lustful desires you know very seductive fantasies in my mind you know and, and my mind was just getting seduced by them uh, and i tried i tried noting and i tried <coughs> uh, this and that and i went down the whole list of remedies nothing was working it's like my mind kept getting caught so as a final as the final remedy i just said enough Joseph, enough! <laughs> you know, cut it out! <laughs> you know, and it was like a, an emphatic no to this uh, happening in the mind. That was not skillful. It was an unwholesome state of mind. You know that I was indulging and couldn't s- seem to extricate myself. So sometimes, just as with you know a kid who's doing something harmful, and you say you know Don't do that! Don't do that!" And finally, no, don't do that. Sometimes we need the strength of that no, but one cautionary note, you know, as you play with yes and no, particularly with the no, it can be very skillful. It needs to be done without aversion. So that's an important point to watch. So you could almost do it with a sense of humor you know where you see that the mind is just getting lost in this unwholesome pattern you try all these different remedies you finally know but it's possible to smile you know at the antics of one's own mind and i recommend that because what i found is that a sense of humor is a huge ally in this whole meditative path because as One meditator once said in an interview, they came in and they were reporting their experience and their big insight was, the mind has no pride, (laughs) meaning it'll do anything, you know, and it'll create all kinds of, all kinds of things. Some are beautiful and wholesome, but some are like these, you know, endless, useless fantasies that were going on in my mind. So, it's helpful just to be able to smile at one's own mind and still take the appropriate action, response to what's happening so that we're cultivating the wholesome and one way or another, letting go of the unwholesome. <clears throat> okay. Does thinking about and doing things for the benefit of one's future self at the expense of being in the present moment Qualify as a form of conceit Okay, and there were some other questions similar to this about You know, how do we plan for things without without it being in the conceit I am in the future? Uh, It's really quite simple It's noticing the difference for example if planning is arising in the mind either in meditation or just you know in the course of your day when planning is needed notice the difference between a plan coming up and the mind being lost in the whole in that whole future scenario so it's it's as if we're living in a mind created world of the future if we're lost in that world if we're not aware as we're in it and in the planning mode, then very likely the I am is being strengthened. However, the planning can be done and we can be mindful of it as being thoughts in the present moment. So even though the content is about the future, the thought itself is happening now. So if we are staying mindful Oh, planning, thinking, whatever, whatever note you give it, then you're not lost in the scene, you're not lost in the scenario, but you're still planning if it if it's needed, you know you can still use that function of mine, but you stay grounded in the understanding that yes, this planning is happening now. It's not that I'm living in the future. <laughs> so I hope I hope you see that difference, uh, and it's very helpful. One thing that you might keep an eye out for, which is a very common tendency that is not that helpful, is obsessive planning, where we go over the same thing again and again and again out of either some anxiety or fear or whatever, whatever the, the cause is behind it. But when you're planning out your move for the 15th time, you might ask yourself is this helpful (laughs) is this useful and probably by the 15th time it's not right so pay attention to that aspect in planning as well because it is a fairly common tendency you know the mind can can get a little obsessive about the planning uh and then we are caught up you know It's as if we're living in the future with the anxiety about it. And that's just causing this this, uh, run of thoughts. Uh, So generally with planning thoughts or with other kind of thoughts too, that question, is this helpful, can be a very effective way of uh, really paying attention. Is it helpful or not? And if we see that it's not helpful, it becomes much easier to let it go because we're, we're being conscious and mindful about it. Uh, if we don't ask that question, very often we're just caught up in a whole run of unhelpful thoughts, right? Which doesn't help anything. Uh, so again, I hope you see that whatever our mind is doing whether it's in a skillful way or an unskillful way, we can learn from it. You know, and that's where I think I mentioned yesterday the importance of interest. If we take interest in what our minds are doing, you know, and then investigate. And this is this is the great role of mindfulness and wisdom. We investigate and see is this furthering the wholesome in some way or not. Am you know, I just getting caught up in something that's unskillful, an unskillful pattern of mind? So we can see this. It's not with judgment. You know, it's really just taking an interest in our own mind and seeing you know, what, what creates more suffering for ourselves and what leads to more peace. Because as I think you all know by now, it's not simply a question of believing what somebody else is saying. We have to see it for ourselves. And that's the beauty of this practice. It's, it's providing us the tools, the technology for this investigation of our own hearts and minds. Because it's only when we see these things for ourselves that the transformation happens. <clears throat> okay, so this is a fairly simple one. <laughs> What is your feeling about whether it's skillful to write or synthesize notes while on retreat? Um, <clears throat> so the, the, the comment before that was that often, you know, in hearing Dharma talks or even in the meditation session, there might be some um, insights, you know, or understandings that uh, we want to remember. And so there's the impulse to make a note or write it down. And that's fine to do. I wouldn't interrupt the sitting for it, but you could make a mental note or remember this and then at the end of the sitting, write it down. Uh, There's there's nothing wrong with that, and it could be helpful. Over time, uh, then you can see, you know, whether having done this for some period of time, whether in fact you ever go back and look at them or not. (laughs) because I have a drawer full of notebooks of all my brilliant insights. (laughs) And they've been in the drawer for years and I haven't opened them. Uh, But there are times when it can be helpful. And there was another question. I don't know exactly where it is in this list, but I remember the question of, is there a time when we can actually and use the thought process you know just to explore and investigate you know, some Dharma point that we find interesting um, and is there a way of thinking in in that way you know skillfully so there is and uh, it can be very useful and very creative dharmically it's as if we devote either a particular meditation session or part of a session where we seed you know we seed the session with the particular thought or idea that we want to explore a little bit and then allow for reflection you know so so we're not just cutting them off as being thoughts but we're actually allowing the mind you know to creatively explore whatever that dharma point is And I've had some very interesting uh, understandings come about through that. I think you'll notice if you do that, that actually, generally, we stay pretty mindful in that thought process. Because it's not just random thoughts, you know, passing through and we get carried away by them. This is a more conscious act of reflection. And I found that because of that, uh, there's a fair amount of mindfulness as it's happening. Uh, so you might well play with it if this is, if this is of interest. Um, I'll just give you one example, which I think I referred to the other day. Um, again, this goes back a few years. And, but I was, I was just reflecting about Second and third noble truth, you know, craving is the cause of suffering. The end of craving is the end of suffering. And as I mentioned, for a long time, I thought this is a far off goal. But then, you know, at some point I realized, no, this, we can actually practice this in each moment and we can kind of come to the end of craving, even if it's just for a few moments, but we get a taste of that freedom. And so my mind just was kind of excited by this uh, because it brought the, it brought the practice, uh, the depth of the practice, right back into the moment. It wasn't postponing it, you know, for some future uh, big enlightenment. And I remember my mind really was reflecting on that. And it's, it was very beneficial. You know, I learned a lot from doing that. Um, one um, guideline for it. Because it can get to be a little too much, or we can start over-reflecting. And we want to pay attention to that. So I don't know how many of you have had the experience of uh, chewing sugarcane, you know, but especially in tropical countries, uh, you can just buy a chunk of sugarcane and chew it. it's very juicy and very sweet. So you put it in your mouth, you chew, and you get the really delicious, sweet uh, liquid. But quite quickly, uh, it becomes dry pulp. You know, and then you just kind of spit it out. Well, our thoughts, these kind of reflection thoughts, they're juicy for a while. But once you find the mind just going over and over, repeating the same insight again and again and again, that's the dry pulp stage. So then you realize, okay, <laughs> enough. Let me come back, you know, in a, more, in a more focused way. So you can play with it, but play with it skillfully. Okay, so this is, um, I think, an important question. and uh, can be challenging. Could you please speak about the emotion of shame? I noticed that I'm stuck in this emotion for many years. It's a very painful emotion, letting me believe that I am unworthy of love and belonging. Okay, so how do we deal with an emotion like that that really is deeply conditioned within us for whatever reason? So I want to share a story about an analogous mind state it wasn't shame itself but it's something related but i think what i learned from that i want to offer this as a suggestion for you to see whether you could apply this to the shame as well because i think it could be very effective so at one point and again you know (laughs) I've been practicing for so long. These stories come from a wide range of how far back. (laughs) So this was quite a while ago, but again, it was very impactful. it's, It's what I learned from it has stuck with me all these years. I was on retreat and I was just remembering something I did and I was feeling tremendous guilt about it. It had been an unskillful act, you know, and so it was coming up very vividly. You know, and my mind—it was just feeling so guilty about it, uh, and all the thoughts and feelings associated with the guilt. Well, this was going on for quite some time. You know, I felt really caught. And guilt is very—it's—it's it's a self-lacerating kind of feeling. We're just—you know—it's if we're cutting ourselves, you know, with with guilt or it might be shame. You know, I think the So I think there's some analogy here that will serve. Uh, So I was noticing this, and I was really in the suffering of it for quite a while. And at a certain point, and I think this is one of the gifts of the practice, at a certain point when I'm really caught in suffering, it begins to pique my interest. It's like, what is going on here that I'm so caught you know, because there's always a reason. It's not. It's not just happening gratuitously. There's something my mind is doing, you know, which is keeping me stuck in this. And when I looked more carefully at the guilt, so again, I was. I was very interested. In what is this, you know, that's causing so much pain in my mind? And then when I looked more carefully, I saw that. Guilt is an ego trip. It's really reinforcing the sense of self in a negative way. You know, I'm so bad because I did this. And the seduction of it, and the reason it has so so much power, for example, in this situation, is because I actually did do that thing. You know, it was an unskillful act. So it's not like it was made up. I actually did it, but my mind went to guilt because of it. But because I'd actually done it, it kept feeding the guilt, you know? And so it was just this loop. But when I saw that guilt was really an ego trip, strengthening the I in a negative way, it was amazing. I mean, as soon as I saw that, it was like one of those moments mara i see you it's like it was almost personifying the guilt as mara coming to coming to seduce me you know into believing it mara i see you and the guilt really fell away in that moment and what replaced it and this is really an important part of it was what i was calling Uh, just the feeling of remorse because in the way I'm using that word now in the remorse that I felt there was acknowledgement of what I had done it wasn't pretending that I never did it and there was the understanding yeah this was unskillful but unlike guilt with remorse it was seeing it taking responsibility for it learning from it, but also seeing it as part of this selfless flow of change that is our life, right? And so built into that deep understanding of impermanence is also forgiveness. You know, we can forgive ourselves. You know, we do harmful things uh, out of ignorance. So we see it, we take responsibility for it, and then we let it pass through. So I would just see if there are any elements of this that would apply to the shame. It may be that the feeling of shame is not coming from any particularly unskillful thing we've done. You know, maybe it was just some situation that was not unwholesome on our part but an unfortunate situation of one kind or another, you know, which led to that feeling. But still, if we're caught in the shame, there still is that same reinforcement of the I, right? And so if we can see that, oh, Mara, I see you, then it might be possible to just drop back into the whole experience and again, put it in some frame which sees it as part of the flow of changing phenomena. So we're not, we're not congealing that particular experience into being who we are. You know, and that's the element of Mara and Mana. You know, we, it's like we, we identify with it, creating that self of, oh, I am this and then with all the attendant feelings about that. So this there's really a great possibility here if we see it and understand it in the right way. Right? So it's not it's not pretending we're not feeling it, you know, or even you know trying to block out whatever might have been the cause of it, but we're holding it in a very different way when we are not uh, we're not reinforcing, right? The I amness of it. You know, we're seeing it more as this non-personal process. Oh, because of this, this arose. Because of this, this arose. And we just see it as part of the flow of our lives, letting it pass through. Uh, I would really encourage, you know, a, a careful investigation of this because often, and I think. Uh, as the question uh, mentioned, stuck in this emotion for many years. And this is not uncommon. You know, people do get caught up in particular unskillful patterns. But what I love about Dhamma practice, and when we have this investigative mind, there's always a key to unlocking the suffering because the suffering is always how we're relating to experience. The suffering is not the experience itself. The experience may be painful, it may be unpleasant, but just as we can learn to be with painful sensations in the body, and it's okay, it doesn't make it pleasant, but it's okay, it's just just an unpleasant feeling which is there and then it passes. So it's the same thing with these emotions. The suffering aspect is not inherent in the unpleasantness of it. The suffering aspect comes from how we're relating to it. And you know, the talks of these last few days of the Papancha would be a very good uh, template You know, it's a beginning investigation. Well, am I relating to it in one of these ways? You know, I mean mine or not? So there is a way, I think, with this kind of investigation to actually free ourselves even from long established patterns. Um, Yeah, so I would really encourage you to do that. Okay. Could you speak to the technique of naming or noting? Uh, take, for example, the following. I crave some pleasant experience. I then note that this is craving. by saying in the mind, craving. Is this saying not just more thought? Should I then note my noting? <laughs> you know, well, you can see, I think, clearly, that that would lead to an infinite regression. I want to explain a little bit about the function of mental noting, um, so this is this is a skillful means. It's a tool of practice. It's not the note is not the essence. The essence is the actual being mindful <coughs> of what's present, and the noting, for some people, for many people, can be helpful. So you have to see for yourself: is this helpful or not? But has to be used in the correct way. So it's true that noting is just a thought. That is just another thought, but it is a conscious thought. You know, we are actually being mind in the very act of noting. We are being mindful, you know, that we are noting. So it's a skillful use of thought in the service of mindfulness. You definitely don't have to note noting. <laughs> you know, it's just, just, for example, if you were noting craving or the breath, craving or the breath in out rise fall sufficient. So this may be getting a little uh, a little technical with respect to what's actually going on in our minds, but perhaps it'll be of interest to you. So one of the conditions for mindfulness to arise, or or we could say a supportive condition for mindfulness to arise is another quality of mind called perception. In fact, perception is one of the basic five aggregates. And what perception means, it's that quality of recognizing what it is that's present. And so this is the naming function. We recognize or craving, or we recognize in-breath or out-breath. So perception is that faculty of recognition. But in the teachings, it's said that this quality of perception, when it's in balance with mindfulness, actually serves and strengthens it. If the mindfulness is not present, that's when we get lost in the world of concepts, because we're living a lot in in the world of our perceptions, of how we recognize things and navigate the world through it. If we're not mindful, then very often we're just lost in this world of concepts. But if it's balanced with mindfulness, then the perception or recognition, craving, or in-breath, out-breath, It serves like a picture frame around the picture. Now, what's the purpose of the frame? It's to focus our attention on the picture. The idea is not for us to be looking at the frame. Although, you know, we'll be aware of it and take it in, but that's not its function. Its function is to focus the attention on what's within the frame. Well, that's how the noting can serve mindfulness. That's how perception is a support for mindfulness. Right? we recognize what it is of craving and then the mindfulness actually uh, helps us enter into the experience of it oh craving is like this craving feels like this you know so we're exploring the actual experience but having noted it you know that that kind of sets the frame and it helps us engage in that further exploration of it so I hope you get some sense of the possibility, you know, that's there with the noting technique. And for those of you, you know, have been practicing a while, you may have some experience of it, and you can see for yourselves, you know, whether it's helpful or not. For those of you who may not have have used it very much, I would suggest just practicing and seeing, you know, take a sitting or part of a sitting or walking. Uh, where you just practice, you know, moment after moment, soft, the the noting has to be very soft, like a a whisper in the mind. So you don't want the note to overshadow the painting, you know, what's being seen. It's just just enough, you know, that recognition, oh, there's this, there's this, there's this. So play with it and see whether it supports your practice. For many people, it becomes a vehicle for really developing stronger concentration and continuity of mindfulness you know because if you're practicing with the noting for some time and then you go through a stretch where you're not noting anymore (laughs) that will be a signal to you that you probably got lost in some train of thought Um, and for some people it's not the right tool you know and they tried it and they track you know they they tried it and practiced it for a while but it doesn't seem that helpful. So keep in mind, it's only a tool, it's not the essence, but it would be worth exploring to see for yourself whether it's helpful. Okay, so this is a question that I think we can all relate to because it's just part of our lives. Compassion to oneself for having cravings as part of being human seems to give me a nudge in the direction of indulging this, uh, of indulging in them. I am not sure what to make of this. Okay, so I think <clears throat> I think we can all recognize that in the course of a day, we have lots of cravings. There are lots of different arising will happen. You know, desire for a cup of tea or desire to go for a walk or lots of things, and sometimes bigger things, you know, more impactful things. So desire and craving is going to come up. And if we're paying attention, we'll see that it comes up a lot. So the question then is, particularly as lay people living in the world, We are living in the realm of um, sense pleasures. (laughs) You know, it's like all around us. We're we're just being exposed to lots of things that might trigger desire and craving in the mind. And this is just part of our life in the world. And it's different. the, The kind of parameters for how to relate to them are somewhat different for lay people and for monastics monastics really have, are on a path very much of renunciation, which is very powerful. I'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, but as lay people, that may not be, you know, the primary uh, aspect that we're practicing. So these desires or cravings will arise. The question then is, well, how do we navigate this in a skillful way if it's not, Uh, that's not deleterious to our well-being. So there are a few things, you know, we could watch out for. One is to really hold the precepts in mind, because the precepts are like guardrails, you know, with the different cravings that may arise. If they would lead us to an act that is breaking one of the precepts, so then the precept would say, oh, you know, maybe this, we don't have to do that. You know, this, this is going too far. This is leading to something that's quite unskillful, you know, with uh, not helpful karmic results. Uh-huh. Right. So the precepts and, you know, having them in mind and really exploring what each of them means for you uh, is very helpful. It, it, it helps us navigate the world with integrity you know, and with safety, you know, so, so they're a great protection. Another aspect that would be worth paying attention to, even when the desire or the craving is not leading to breaking a precept, but to see, are they becoming obsessive? You know, is this just taking over the mind and we're obsessing about it? So then again, then it's becoming too much. You know, it's like it's out of control. It's not just part of, you know, our ease for life in the world. You know, enjoying the sense pleasures appropriate, you know, to us as lay people. Uh, it's really causing suffering in the mind. So if we watch out for that, if it's becoming obsessive, that's a time to really step back and investigate. Okay, what's going on here? Why am I so driven by this? Even in the enjoyment of kind of ordinary sense pleasures, which are really fine. Again, for us as lay people in the world, we do enjoy, you know, lots of lots of pleasant things uh, arise in the course of a day. But what I found helpful and and in a way, it's fun. It, well, it might not sound like fun to you when I say it. <laughs> sometimes just during the course of a day and I'll have some small desire, let, let's just say for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or a piece of cake, or, I don't know, something really simple, you know, relatively harmless. But then <clears throat> really for fun, <laughs> I'll just periodically say, no. I don't, really need to, I don't really need to do that. So it's like a mini moment of renunciation. You know, the desire is there. The craving is there. The wanting is there. But with strength, this, this would be the skillful, interesting use of the no. Remember I was talking about yes and no? So instead of saying yes to it, just occasionally, <laughs> you know, when you're so inspired with a desire that's coming out, no, I don't need to do that. And what I find, I find those moments very um, actually important. They're impactful uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it feels like in that moment, it's a little victory over Mara. <laughs> Remember, I, I described one meaning of Mara was, it was actually as this being, you know, this, who wants to keep us all enmeshed in the world of pleasure. That's his function, <laughs> uh, and it's interesting in the Buddhist texts. You know, he's called the evil one, but usually in in the Western mind we think of that. You know, as some kind of hell being, but in the Buddhist understanding, no, it's this being who wants to keep us enmeshed in pleasure. <laughs> well, I find that interesting. So these little moments of renunciation no, I don't need to do that. It feels like. It's a momentary victory over Mara. Oh. In addition to that, because in that moment we are cultivating renunciation. So even though it's not our major path as it might be for a monastic, it's still a tremendously powerful strength in the mind. You know, where we have that ability not to be continually seduced you know, by the desires, by the cravings which will come, but we see, oh no, there's this place in the mind, there's this strength in the mind, there's this kind of resilience in the mind that could go with it or not go with it. You know, we, we, we're, we're developing that muscle of the mind of renunciation, and my experience in those moments is first that it's energizing, you know, because there's a, there's a kind of feeling of strength that comes from the ability to do that. So I would play with that, you know, uh, and again, not, not obsessing about it, but just bringing it into the day somewhat. No, I don't need to do that. You know, and then go on and see, see for yourself what it feels like. You know, exploring the difference in your experience of your mind when you do go to fulfill the craving and desire and when you don't go. (laughs) So all of this is a learning about another possibility for navigating this world that we're living in. this is a very easy question is it permissible to share portions of the recorded replay of the retreat with others seems fine to me (laughs) so uh, that's that (laughs) um how to deal with obsessive thoughts that arise because of childhood trauma okay so again this is a really important deep question So there are various ways to begin to understand this. Sometimes especially on retreat for people with a traumatic background sometimes their mind their hearts open up and actually in a way regress back to the situation you know now reliving the trauma. Uh-huh. So this is a very delicate situation in practice and it's really helpful to have some guidance with this because you need to deal with that quite skillfully that is uh, and basically um it's taking it slow you know sometimes people have i'm going to get in there and deal with this and finish with it Uh, that's generally not a good idea You know, it's like really approaching it very slowly, touching a little bit, backing off. uh, And so we learn to integrate it a bit more. There are some people who have really worked a lot with trauma and meditation. I want to recommend a book. It's called Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness by David Trelevin. And it's a really very skillful book about how to apply the meditation uh, to the situation of uh, reliving trauma. And we will be sending out uh, in the next day or two some of the books which I've mentioned. This is Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. That could be a real help, you know, in your navigating with this. But sometimes, the, the thoughts that are arising are not because we're reliving the trauma, but we're remembering it. And it's just producing a lot of obsessive thoughts. So that's a, that's a different situation. because it's not, like, it's not like we're going back into the trauma itself, but we are remembering and thinking a lot about it. So I want to share another experience I had from another retreat many years ago. And again, it's analogous. It wasn't, um, well, it was traumatic in its own way. So I was on retreat. This was a two-month retreat. And I did something in an effort to ease uh, some back pain I was having. I did something which made it infinitely worse. I mean, it was really terrible. It's like my whole body, it's just if my whole body went into shock, you know, and, and froze in this, in this, it's a terrible situation. You know, it was painful and contracted and frozen. And then my mind just started blaming myself. You know, how could I have done that? Why couldn't I just leave well enough alone? Why did I try to fix something? You know, And the, the phrase that was so seductive, <laughs> I don't know whether you'll be able to relate to this or not, but the phrase that kept coming up in my mind was, how can you have been so stupid? <laughs> and then my mind would just be lost, really lost in anguish. You know, just all these judgmental recriminating thoughts, self-recriminating about, because my body was really in a bad situation, and it turns out it lasted for a couple of years. So it was, it was not a small thing. But on retreat, I was still on, re- this happened like after the first month, so I was still there for another whole month, you know, trying to deal with this in this mind state of anguish and It's obsessive thinking about it. So after a while, I said, you know, I was in so much suffering, over and above the the pain and discomfort in the body. (laughs) My mind was just in this terrible way, you know, anguish and suffering and obsessive thinking. And I realized that I could not give these thoughts any airtime at all, because if I even let that first sentence go by, how can I have been so stupid? I was gone. That that was enough to just take me away, you know, for half an hour on this train of, of thought. And so I realized, This thought is so seductive because I believed it. (laughs) How could I have been so stupid? (laughs) So I realized just no thought. I can't give it any airtime. So I kept watching just for the arising of the beginning of that thought. So instead of letting it play out, how can I have been so stupid? And then on and on and on. When I saw in my mind, how can I? it was just first few words you know i just took out the sword of wisdom okay no that's that's where a no a very very definitive no came in so an image that came to mind you know at amusement parks where you maybe you know i don't know you're shooting at some balloons to to break them and then you get a prize or something uh, so that that was the image in my mind i was every time every time that the beginning of that thought came <laughs> just knock it out of the sky, knock it out of the mind. Again, I want to emphasize this can be done, and I started doing it with a sense of humor. Because if we do it with aversion, it's just going to be feeding it. So this is really important. We can have that very strong, no, this is not skillful. <laughs> you know, not going not to even let this thought Continue it all, uh, but not with aversion. You know, just coming out of place of understanding and wisdom. And it was amazing when I didn't allow the mind. when I didn't not feeding. You know, that whole that whole obsessive thought process. Uh, it really diminished because I just was not allowing it to take over my mind with this forceful. No, no. You know, uh, and it made a huge difference. The body still was going through its trip, and it took a while, as I said, quite a while for it to heal. But my mind got much, much better. Uh, you know, I was m- much more able to sit back and just relax into what the situation was. Um, so you might apply this. Uh, Okay, so mm -hmm. could you please explain, the the time goes really quickly, (laughs) there's a lot more questions here. Uh, Can you please explain a bit more how to do the walking meditation from a beginner's perspective? So I want to address this because the walking practice is so helpful so valuable i think as i mentioned the other day probably more than the sitting the walking meditation and the mindfulness we develop to it will carry over most into our lives because we're practicing being mindful of the body moving and just in the course of a day we move a lot so the walking practice is fantastic and you can do it in different ways so it's just you know fine basically Finding a path back where you're walking back and forth, which is really helpful. Uh, and it could be ten steps, fifteen steps, five steps, depends, you know, what your circumstances. But ten to fifteen to twenty steps would be a, would be a good length. And you can practice at different speeds. So as you begin, you might be walking at a more or less a normal pace, or slightly slower than normal. You know, where, you, where you're just aware as I was talking about yesterday with the elements, just the moving and touching, moving and touching, feeling rather than watching. So it's really simple. Just taking a step and you feel the movement. You feel the touch. Another step, feel the movement, feel the touch. It's really that simple. And you could practice uh, using the noting, you know, and seeing if that helps. And then as the mind settles into being mindful of that, walking moving and touching you could begin to slow down a little bit you know and maybe begin to break the step up into different parts Uh, so the first thing might be lifting placing lifting placing or even in three parts you know lifting the heel so you're lifting and then moving forward and then placing where the foot comes down and touches So lift, move, place, lift, move, place. Feeling it rather than watching it, right? Uh, And staying very relaxed. And the questions which I talked about yesterday, you know, what's being known moment after moment, you could just hold that in the mind uh, so that as you're noting, you know, the lift, move, place, you're actually connecting with the felt experience of that. So in the lifting, what, what actually you feeling moving forward and placing. Um, so that's basically it. And then of course, the mind will wander, you know. and so when you notice that, just become aware and come back, take another step. Um, this is worth doing. <laughs> You know, and I would devote some time to it, not, not just, you know, doing the walking meditation for five minutes, but really give it time and develop it because you're developing that habit to be mindful of the body in movement. And at a certain point, that becomes so ingrained, it becomes the default. You know, so as you're moving about in the world, you'll find yourself naturally being much more mindful you know, of the body and your activities. Okay, the question, this, this, there were a few questions about this. Basically, what is doing the knowing? I think I get pretty out of the picture in knowing or noticing arising experience, but still the wondering of what is knowing uh, arises. Uh, am I hopelessly lost in dualism? And there's another question. Uh, If there's no I, me, or mine, if there's no self, then what or who is observing movement? Whether there is taste or there is movement. And there was another one. Um, I have a question regarding being known. When I tell myself, for example, chewing is being known, my mind immediately asks, known by whom? (laughs) Okay, so... (laughs) You see, it's all related. So just a couple of things to say about this. One is a more helpful question rather than being known by whom might be known by what? Because already, if we're using the whom, already that's positing a who, you know, a self, an I doing it and then it gets confusing well who is who is this mysterious who uh and of course it's difficult because it's not there in the first place so who is not exactly the right question but we could ask you know if things are being known well known by what different buddhist traditions have different ways of explaining this and i just want to mention a few of them And then you can see you know what what actually fits your experience so basically what is knowing that knowing is the definition of consciousness in other words consciousness in the buddhist in the buddhist context means that which knows it's the knowing faculty of mind so we know a sight or know a sound or know a thought right So that's the function of consciousness. And consciousness in itself is not I, it's not mine, it's just another non-personal aspect of this mind-body process with its own particular function, which is to know the arising object. Okay, so consciousness, equals knowing, right? That, that's what knows, it's consciousness that knows. How can we begin to really explore the nature of consciousness? Yeah, so this, this gets really interesting. So in one, in some Buddhist traditions, it's explained that what we're <laughs> what we're calling self You know, this flow of changing phenomena. What's happening is there is a pairwise progression of knowing knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. That's what the unfolding is. You know, in each moment, each object has its own moment of consciousness, which knows it. And both knowing an object are arising and passing away in each moment. And so this is the flow of life. In meditation, we usually start with the mindfulness of the object because it's more tangible. But as the practice deepens, one of the insights is the recognition that what's happening at every moment is knowing an object, right? And so we begin to we begin to experience the knowing aspect and the object. Uh, the object aspect. So knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. Uh, So that gives us quite a clear understanding of the experience and the function of consciousness you know, in the moment, that it's a process also arising and passing away in each moment with each new object. So that's one framework for understanding how consciousness functions. In other Buddhist traditions, there's another interesting approach which reveals another aspect of consciousness. And there's there's a Zen story uh, which uh, highlights this. And the story, sometimes people hear the story as a kind of Zen witticism, you know, and they chuckle at the end. But don't hear it like that. There's actually a profound teaching in it. <laughs> right, so don't, don't miss it. By uh, So um, this seeker came, I, I think, came to see Bodhidharma, who's the great master who brought Buddhism from India to China. So this seeker came to Bodhidharma and said, you know, I'm suffering so much, and really was, Uh, please help pacify my mind. So Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I'll pacify it. And the seeker says, I've looked for it everywhere. I've looked for this mind everywhere and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. So this point to one aspect or one way of approaching understanding consciousness or knowing (laughs) it's like we look for it but there's nothing tangible to find and yet the knowing is happening so we can't find it but it's still functioning you know and this is kind of the mystery of consciousness but in the not finding, I've looked for it everywhere and I can't find it. It is interesting in that moment of recognizing the unfindability of it, the mind is already pacified. I, I've I've used this I've used this little story and that, that phrase. Uh, frequently, if my mind is caught up in some, you know, some struggle of one kind or another. And, you know, I'm just in it for whatever reason, and then I see that. And I'll often use this phrase because I'm so familiar with the story. All I have to do is remind myself, i oh, already pacified. Because I, I already know what precedes that. It's like, oh, there's nothing to find. And in that nothing to find, already pacified so again these these approaches come from different traditions the descriptions are not the point the point of all this is what frees the mind from clinging what frees the mind from attachment what frees the mind from papancha so i wouldn't get so caught up at well which of these is right you know they're both right (laughs) Because they're both skillful means, and we want to see it as skillful means. Now, any model is a skillful means for freeing our hearts and minds. So that's the test, you know, which skillful means actually helps you, you know, to come to that place of greater freedom. Okay, so let's see just if there are... Okay, I'll just do a couple more. Uh, so, uh, talking about the four brahma-vihāras, uh, which arise as a result of letting go of the Papanchas. But how does one aim to reach these qualities while setting boundaries around people close to you who are mean-spirited? You know, in parentheses, usually as a result of their own suffering. So this is a very practical question you know how how do we have or cultivate these brahmaviharas when we when we're in these difficult situations with with people who uh, are really difficult mean spirited doing doing harmful things it is perfectly fine in these situations to set boundaries you know and so loving-kindness or compassion doesn't mean that we just kind of roll over and kind of let people walk all over us. No, you know, we, if a boundary is appropriate, we set it. However, can we do it with kindness rather than with anger or aversion? Ram Das's guru, Maharaji, he, he had this one teaching, do what you do but don't throw anyone out of your heart. And, and I really appreciate that because sometimes we do need to set boundaries or say, no, this is wrong. Or however, we're responding you know, to a difficult situation, but are we doing it without throwing that person out of our hearts? Are we doing it with kindness? Um, the Dalai Lama had a, a beautiful teaching. He said, Practice kindness or be kind whenever possible. It's always possible. So that's really important to remember. It is always possible because that's up to us. That has nothing really to do with the other person. It's our capacity, you know, and we can practice it and we can cultivate it. So it does have the strength, you know, to be there in these very challenging circumstances, where we do take action, we respond, but from a place of kindness, from a place of caring, from not throwing them out of our hearts. Okay, this is just a a slight corrective, this is a simple one. Uh, You said once a being becomes fully awakened, they have no more defilements of thinking and then the question goes on, but that, that was a little misinterpretation. It's not that all thinking necessarily stops, it's that defilement stops. So there's no greed or hatred or delusion, but the thinking function can still be there. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. <laughs> So this was a question of using the phrase of things being known. uh, But using that, you know, uh, in the practice. uh, To say that over and over again, the different things being known all the time makes for a very busy internal monologue. So it's, it's things, sight being known, sound being known, thought being, don't have to do that use that phrase of things being known just maybe right at the beginning to set the frame for how we're going to be holding experience that's all. so it's just a reminder okay i'm going to spend the next period of time in this framework of settled back and simply watching for or being aware of what's being known moment after moment It's not that you have to repeat that phrase each time. Okay, (laughs) Uh, So we're coming to the end of the retreat. Uh, Roxanne will be leading the closing session uh, this evening and with the dedication of merit. Um, I just want to mention that um, I've really enjoyed being with you all, even though I can't see you, because I can't see you with my physical eye, but I feel like I'm seeing you with my mind's eye. <laughs> so as I'm talking, you know, into the camera of the iPad, the iPad disappears really, and it's as if it really is as if we're here together. Uh, and so I have really enjoyed this time with you, uh, and I hope that it has been helpful for you. Um, and I'm going to do something which I almost never do, which is <laughs> to give a little plug for my book, Mindfulness. <laughs> and, and so that'll be on the book list. But the reason is that, um, this is a big book it's like 400 some pages. And it comes out of a series of 47 talks I gave at the Forest Refuge about, satipatthana discourse that is the discourse on mindfulness but the book goes into quite a lot of detail about many of the questions you asked you know and so it could be a resource for you you know if you still have questions or or want to further explore some of the ones you asked and i responded to there's a lot in the book about many of the topics uh, that you brought up through your questions so if you were interested and inclined, you might take a look at that. So thank you very much for being here and your presence, and I hope it's been valuable for you. Um, So let's sit just for um, a minute or two and let everything resolve and settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSeed.com